Chapter Five of the Danger Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Danger Trail by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Five, Howland's Midnight Visitor. For a moment after the swift passing of the sledge, it was on Howland's lips to shout Quasset's name. As he thrust Gregson aside and leaped out into the night, he was impelled with a desire to give chase, to overtake in some way the two people who, within the space of forty-eight hours, had become so mysteriously associated with his own life, and who were now escaping him again. It was Gregson who recalled him to his senses. "'I thought you didn't care for theaters and girls, Howland,' he exclaimed banteringly repeating Howland's words of a few minutes before. "'A pretty face affects you a little differently up here, huh? Well, after you've been in this fag end of the universe for a month or so, you'll learn—' Howland interrupted him sharply. "'Did you ever see either of them before, Gregson?' "'Never, until today. But there's hope, old man. Surely we can find someone in the place who knows them.' Wouldn't it be jolly good fun if Jack Howland, Esquire, who has never been interested in theaters and girls, should come up into these godforsaken regions and develop a case of love at first sight? By the Great North Trail, I tell you it may not be as uninteresting for you as it has been for Thorne and me. If I had only seen her sooner. Shut up, growled Howland, betraying irritability for the first time. Let's go in to supper. Good. And I move that we investigate these people while we are smoking our after-supper cigars. It will pass our time away, at least. Your taste is good, Gregson, said Howland, recovering his good humor as they seated themselves at one of the rough board tables in the dining room. Inwardly, he was convinced it would be best to keep to himself the incidents of the past two days and nights. It was a beautiful face. And the eyes, added Gregson, his own gleaming with enthusiasm. She looked at me squarely this afternoon when she and that dark fellow passed, and I swear they're the most beautiful eyes I ever saw. And her hair. Do you think that she knew you? asked Howland quietly. Gregson hunched his shoulders. How the deuce could she know me? "'Then why did she look at you so squarely? "'Trying to flirt, do you suppose?' Surprise shot into Gregson's face. "'By thunder, no, she wasn't flirting,' he exclaimed. "'I'd stake my life on that. "'A man never got a clearer, more sinless look than she gave me, "'and yet, why, deuce take it, she stared at me. "'I didn't see her again after that.' But the dark fellow was in here half the afternoon, and now that I come to think of it, he did show some interest in me. Why do you ask? Just curiosity, replied Howland. I don't like flirts. Neither do I, said Gregson, musingly. Their supper came on, and they conversed but little until its end. Howland had watched his companion closely and was satisfied that he knew nothing of Croisset or the girl. The fact puzzled him more than ever. How Gregson and Thorne, two of the best engineers in the country, 
could voluntarily surrender a task like the building of the Hudson Bay Railroad simply because they were tired of the country was more than he could understand. It was not until they were about to leave the table that Howland's eyes accidentally fell on Gregson's left hand. He gave an exclamation of astonishment when he saw that the little finger was missing. Gregson jerked the hand to his side. "'A little accident,' he explained. "'You'll meet him up here, Howland.' Before he could move, the young engineer had caught his arm and was looking closely at the hand. "'A curious wound,' he remarked, without looking up. "'Funny, I didn't notice it before. Your finger was cut off lengthwise, and here's the scar running halfway to your wrist. How did you do it?' He dropped the hand in time to see a nervous flush in the other's face. "'Why, uh—' "'Fact is, Howland, it was shot off several months ago, in an accident, of course.' He hurried through the door, continuing to speak over his shoulder as he went. "'Now for those after-supper cigars and our investigation.' As they passed from the dining-room into that part of the inn which was half bar and half lounging room, already filled with smoke and a dozen or so picturesque citizens of Le Pas, the rough-jowled proprietor of the place motioned to Howland and held out a letter. "'This came while you was at supper, Mr. Howland,' he explained. The engineer gave an inward start when he saw the writing on the envelope, and as he tore it open he turned so that Gregson could see neither his face nor the slip of paper which he drew forth. There was no name at the bottom of what he read. It was not necessary.' for a glance had told him that the writing was that of the girl whose face he had seen again that night. And her words to him this time, despite his caution, drew a low whistle from his lips. "'Forgive me for what I have done,' the note ran. "'Believe me now. Your life is in danger, and you must go back to Etomami tomorrow. If you go to the Wakusko camp, you will not live to come back.' "'The devil!' he exclaimed. "'What's that?' asked Gregson, edging around him curiously. Howland crushed the note in his hand and thrust it into one of his pockets. "'A little private affair,' he laughed. "'Come, Gregson, let's see what we can discover.' In the gloom outside, one of his hands slipped under his coat and rested on the butt of his revolver. Until ten o'clock they mixed casually among the populace of Le Pas. Half a hundred people had seen Croisset and his beautiful companion, but no one knew anything about them. They had come that afternoon on a sledge, had eaten their dinner and supper at the cabin of a Scotch tie-cutter named MacDonald, and had left on a sledge. "'She was the sweetest thing I ever saw!' exclaimed Mrs. MacDonald rapturously. Only she couldn't talk. Two or three times she wrote things to me on a slip of paper. "'Couldn't talk,' repeated Gregson, as the two men walked leisurely back to the boarding-house. "'What the deuce do you suppose that means, Jack?' "'I'm not supposing,' replied Howland indifferently. "'We've had enough of this pretty face, Gregson. I'm going to bed. What time do we start in the morning?' 
"'As soon as we've had breakfast, if you're anxious.' "'I am. Good night.' Howland went to his room, but it was not to sleep. For hours he sat wide awake, smoking cigar after cigar, and thinking. One by one he went over the bewildering incidents of the past two days. At first they had stirred his blood with a certain exhilaration, a spice of excitement which was not at all unpleasant. But with this excitement there was now a peculiar sense of oppression. The attempt that had already been made on his life, together with the persistent warnings for him to return into the South, began to have their effect. But Howland was not a man to surrender to his fears, if they could be called fears. He was satisfied that a mysterious peril of some kind awaited him at the camp on the Wekusko, but he gave up trying to fathom the reason for this peril accepting in his business-like way the fact that it did exist, and that in a short time it would probably explain itself. The one puzzling factor which he could not drive out of his thoughts was the girl. Her sweet face haunted him. At every turn he saw it, now over the table in the opium den, now in the white starlight of the trail, again as it had looked at him for an instant from the sledge. Vainly he strove to discover for himself the lurking of sin in the pure eyes that had seemed to plead for his friendship, in the soft lips that had lied to him because of their silence. "'Please forgive me for what I have done.' He unfolded the crumpled note and read the words again and again. "'Believe me now.' She knew that he knew that she had lied to him, that she had lured him into the danger from which she now wished to save him. His cheeks burned. If a thousand perils threatened him on the Wekusko, he would still go. He would meet the girl again. Despite his strongest efforts, he found it impossible to destroy the vision of her beautiful face. The eyes soft with appeal the red mouth quivering, and with lips parted as if about to speak to him, the head as he had looked down on it with its glory of shining hair. All had burned themselves on his soul in a picture too deep to be eradicated. If the wilderness was interesting to him before, it was doubly so now because that face was a part of it, because the secret of its life, of the misery that it had half confessed to him, was hidden somewhere out in the black mystery of the spruce and balsam forests. He went to bed, but it was a long time before he fell asleep. It seemed to him that he had scarcely closed his eyes when a pounding on the door aroused him, and he awoke to find the early light of dawn creeping through the narrow window of his room. A few minutes later he joined Gregson, who was ready for breakfast. "'The sledge and dogs are waiting,' he greeted. As they seated themselves at the table, he added, "'I've changed my mind since last night, Howland. I'm not going back with you. It's absolutely unnecessary, for Thorne can put you on to everything at the camp, and I'd rather lose six months' salary than take that sledge ride again.' You won't mind, will you?" Howland hunched his shoulders. 
To be honest, Gregson, I don't believe you'd be particularly cheerful company. What sort of fellow is the driver? We call him Jackpine, a Cree Indian, and he's the one faithful slave of Thorne and myself at Wakusko. Hunts for us, cooks for us, and watches after things generally. You'll like him all right. Howland did. When they went out to the sledge after their breakfast, he gave Jackpine a hearty grip of the hand, and the Cree's dark face lighted up with something like pleasure when he saw the enthusiasm in the young engineer's eyes. When the moment for parting came, Gregson pulled his companion a little to one side. His eyes shifted nervously, and Howland saw that he was making a strong effort to assume an indifference which was not at all Gregson's natural self. "'Just a word, Howland,' he said. "'You know this is a pretty rough country up here, some tough people in it, who wouldn't mind cutting a man's throat or sending a bullet through him for a good team of dogs and a rifle. I'm just telling you this so you'll be on your guard. Have Jackpine watch your camp nights.' He spoke in a low voice and cut himself short when the Indian approached. Howland seated himself in the middle of the six-foot toboggan, waved his hand to Gregson, then, with a wild halloo and a snapping of his long caribou-gut whip, Jackpine started his dogs on a trot down the street, running close beside the sledge. Howland had lighted a cigar, and leaning back in a soft mass of furs, began to enjoy his new experience hugely. Day was just fairly breaking over the forests when they turned into the white trail, already beaten hard by the passing of many dogs and sledges, that led from Le Pas for a hundred miles to the camp on the Wakusko. As they struck the trail, the dogs strained harder at their traces, with Jackpine's whip curling and snapping over their backs until they were leaping swiftly and with unbroken rhythm of motion over the snow. Then the Cree gathered in his whip and ran close to the leader's flank, his moccasined feet taking the short, quick, light steps of the trained forest runner, his chest thrown a little out, his eyes on the twisting trail ahead. It was a glorious ride, and in the exhilaration of it, Howland forgot to smoke the cigar that he held between his fingers. His blood thrilled to the tireless effort of the grayish-yellow pack of magnificent brutes ahead of him. He watched the muscular play of their backs and legs, the eager outreaching of their wolfish heads, their half-gaping jaws, and from them he looked at Jackpine. There was no effort in his running. His black hair swept back from the gray of his cap. Like the dogs, there was music in his movement. The beauty of strength, of endurance, of manhood born to the forests, and when the dogs finally stopped at the foot of a huge ridge, panting and half-exhausted, Howland quickly leaped from the sledge and for the first time spoke to the Indian. "'That was glorious, Jackpine,' he cried. "'But good Lord, man, you'll kill the dogs!' Jackpine grinned. "'They go sixty mile in a day like that,' he grinned. Sixty miles!' In his admiration for the wolfish-looking beasts that were carrying him through the wilderness, 
Howland put out a hand to stroke one of them on the head. With a warning cry, the Indian jerked him back just as the dog snapped fiercely at the extended hand. "'No touch husky!' he exclaimed. "'Him half-wolf, half-dog. Work hard, but no like to be touch!' "'Wow!' exclaimed Howland. "'And they're the sweetest-looking pups I ever laid eyes on. I'm certainly running up against some strange things in this country.' He was dead tired when night came, and yet never in all his life had he enjoyed a day so much as this one. Twenty times he had joined Jack Pine in running beside the sledge. In their intervals of rest he had even learned to snap the thirty-foot caribou-gut lash of the dog-whip. He had asked a hundred questions, had insisted on Jack Pine smoking a cigar at every stop, and had been so happy and so altogether companionable that half of the Cree's hereditary reticence had been swept away before his unbounded enthusiasm. He helped to build their balsam shelter for the night, ate a huge supper of moose meat, hot stone biscuits, beans, and coffee, and then, just as he had stretched himself out in his furs for the night, he remembered Gregson's warning. He sat up and called to Jack Pine, who was putting a fresh log on the big fire in front of the shelter. "'Gregson told me to be sure and have the camp guarded at night, Jack Pine. What do you think about it?' The Indian turned with a queer chuckle, his leathery face wrinkled in a grin. "'Gregson, he'm very much afraid,' he replied. "'No bad man here. All down there and in camp. We kept watch every night.' "'He'm afraid, I guess so, maybe.' "'Afraid of what?' For a moment Jack Pine was silent, half bending over the fire. Then he held out his left hand, with the little finger doubled out of sight, and pointed to it with his other hand. "'Maybe him finger accident? Maybe not,' he said. A dozen eager questions brought no further suggestions from Jack Pine. In fact, no sooner had the words fallen from his driver's lips than Howland saw that the Indian was sorry he had spoken them. What he had said strengthened the conviction which was slowly growing within him. He had wondered at Gregson's strange demeanor, his evident anxiety to get out of the country, and lastly at his desire not to return to the camp on the Wekusko with him. There was but one solution that came to him, in some way which he could not fathom, Gregson was associated with the mystery which enveloped him, and adding the senior engineer's nervousness to the significance of Jack Pine's words, he was confident that the missing finger had become a factor in the enigma. How should he find Thorn? Surely he would give him an explanation, if there was an explanation to give. Or was it possible that they would leave him without warning to face a situation which was driving them back to civilization? He went to sleep, giving no further thought to the guarding of the camp. A piping hot breakfast was ready when Jack Pine awakened him, and once more the exhilarating excitement of their swift race through the forests relieved him of the uncomfortable mental tension under which he began to find himself. During the whole of the day, 
Jackpine urged the dogs almost to the limit of their endurance, and early in the afternoon assured his companion that they would reach the Wekusko by nightfall. It was already dark when they came out of the forest into a broad stretch of cutting beyond which Howland caught the glimmer of scattered lights. At the farther edge of the clearing, the Cree brought his dogs to a halt close to a large log-built cabin half-sheltered among the trees. It was situated several hundred yards from the nearest of the lights ahead, and the unbroken snow about it showed that it had not been used as a habitation for some time. Jackpine drew a key from his pocket and without a word unlocked and swung open the heavy door. Damp, cold air swept into the faces of the two as they stood for a moment peering into the gloom. Howland could hear the Cree chuckling in his inimitable way as he struck a match, and as a big hanging oil lamp flared slowly into light, he turned a grinning face to the engineer. "'Gregson, um, Thorn, he make this cabin when first come to camp,' he said softly. "'No be near much noise. Fine place in woods where be quiet nights. Live here time, then Gregson um Thorm go to live in camp. Say too far away from man. But that not so. Thorn frayed. Gregson frayed.' He hunched his shoulders again as he opened the door of the big box stove which stood in the room. Howland asked no questions but stared about him. Everywhere he saw evidences of the taste and one-time tenancies of the two senior engineers. Heavy bear rugs lay on the board floor. The log walls, hewn almost to polished smoothness, were hung with half a dozen pictures. In one corner was a bookcase, still filled with books, in another a lounge covered with furs and in this side of the room was a door which Howland supposed must open into the sleeping apartment. A fire was roaring in the big stove before he finished his inspection, and as he squared his shivering back to the heat, he pulled out his pipe and smiled cheerfully at Jackpine. "'Afraid, huh? And am I to stay here?' "'Gregson, um, Thorn, say yes.' "'Well, Jackpine, you just hustle over to the camp and tell Thorne I'm here, will you?' For a moment the Indian hesitated, then went out and closed the door after him. "'Afraid!' exclaimed Howland when he had gone. "'Now what the devil are they afraid of? "'It's deuced queer, Gregson, and ditto Thorne. "'If you're not the cowards I'm half believing you to be,' You won't leave me in the dark to face something from which you are running away. He lighted a small lamp and opened the door leading into the other room. It was, as he had surmised, the sleeping chamber. The bed, a single chair, and a mirror and stand were its sole furnishing. Returning to the larger room, he threw off his coat and hat and seated himself comfortably before the fire. Ten minutes later the door opened again, and Jackpine entered. He was supporting another figure by the arm, and as Howland stared into the bloodless face of the man who came with him, he could not repress the exclamation of astonishment which rose to his lips. 
Three months before he had last seen Thorne in Chicago, a man in the prime of life, powerfully built, as straight as a tree, the most efficient and highest-paid man in the company's employ. How often had he envied Thorne? For years he had been his ideal of a great engineer. And now... He stood speechless. Slowly, as if the movement gave him pain, Thorne slipped off the great fur coat from about his shoulders. One of his arms was suspended in a sling. His huge shoulders were bent, his eyes wild and haggard. The smile that came to his lips as he held out a hand to Howland gave to his death-white face an appearance even more ghastly. "'Hello, Jack,' he greeted. "'What's the matter, man? Do I look like a ghost?' "'What is the matter, Thorne? I found Gregson half-dying at Le Pas, and now you—' "'It's a wonder you're not reading my name on a little board slab "'instead of seeing yours truly in flesh and blood, Jack,' laughed Thorne nervously. "'A ton of rock, man, a ton of rock, and I was under it.' Over Thorne's shoulder the young engineer caught a glimpse of the Cree's face. A dark flash had shot into his eyes. His teeth gleamed for an instant between his tense lips in something that might have been a sneer. Thorne sat down, rubbing his hands before the fire. "'We've been unfortunate, Jack,' he said slowly. "'Gregson and I have had the worst kind of luck since the day we struck this camp, and we're no longer fit for the job. It will take us six months to get on our feet again.' You'll find everything here in good condition. The line is blazed straight to the bay. We've got three hundred good men, plenty of supplies, and so far as I know, you'll not find a disaffected hand on the Wekusko. Probably Gregson and I will take hold of the Lepa end of the line in the spring. It's certainly up to you to build the roadway to the bay." "'I'm sorry things have gone badly,' replied Howland. He leaned forward until his face was close to his companion's. "'Thorne, is there a man up here named Croisset, or a girl called Melisse?' He watched the senior engineer closely. Nothing to confirm his suspicions came into Thorne's face. Thorne looked up, a little surprised at the tone of the other's voice. "'Not that I know of, Jack. There may be a man named Croisset among our three hundred workers. You can tell by looking at the payroll. There are fifteen or twenty married men among us, and they have families. Gregson knows more about the girls than I. Anything particular?' "'Just a word I've got for them, if they're here,' replied Howland carelessly. "'Are these my quarters?' "'If you like them. When I got hurt, we moved up among the men. Brought us into closer touch with the working end, you know. "'You and Gregson must have been laid up at about the same time,' said the young engineer. "'That was a painful wound of Gregson's. I wonder who the deuce it was who shot him. Funny that a man like Gregson should have an enemy.' 
Thorne sat up with a jerk. There came the rattle of a pan from the stove, and Howland turned his head in time to see Jack Pine staring at him as though he had exploded a mine under his feet. "'Who shot him?' gasped the senior engineer. "'Why, uh, didn't Gregson tell you that it was an accident?' "'Why should he lie, Thorne?' A faint flush swept into the other's pallid face. For a moment there was a penetrating glare in his eyes as he looked at Howland. Jack Pine still stood silent and motionless beside the stove. "'He told me that it was an accident,' said Thorne at last. "'Funny,' was all that Howland said, turning to the Indian as though the matter was of no importance. "'Ah, Jack Pine, I'm glad to see the coffee pot on. I've got a box of the blackest and mildest Puerto Ricans you ever laid eyes on in my kit, Thorne.' and we'll open them up for a good smoke after supper. Hello, why have you got boards nailed over that window? For the first time, Howland noticed that the thin muslin curtain, which he thought had screened a window, concealed, in place of a window, a carefully fitted barricade of plank. A sudden thrill shot through him as he rose to examine it. With his back toward Thorne, he said, half laughing, "'Perhaps Gregson was afraid that the fellow who clipped off his finger would get him through the window, huh?' He pretended not to perceive the effect of his words on the senior engineer. The two sat down to supper, and for an hour after they had finished, they smoked and talked on the business of the camp. It was ten o'clock when Thorne and Jackpine left the cabin. No sooner had they gone than Howland closed and barred the door, lighted another cigar, and began pacing rapidly up and down the room. Already there were developments. Gregson had lied to him about his finger. Thorne had lied to him about his own injuries, whatever they were. He was certain of these two things, and of more. The two senior engineers were not leaving the Wekusko because of mere dissatisfaction with the work and country. They were fleeing. And for some reason they were keeping from him the real motive for their flight. Was it possible that they were deliberately sacrificing him in order to save themselves? He could not bring himself to believe this, notwithstanding the evidence against them. Both were men of irreproachable honor. Thorne, especially, was a man of indomitable nerve, a man who would be the last in the world to prove treacherous to a business associate or a friend. He was sure that neither of them knew of Croisset or of the beautiful girl whom he had met at Prince Albert, which led him to believe that there were other characters in the strange plot in which he had become involved besides those whom he had encountered in the Great North Trail. Again he examined the barricaded window, and he was more than ever convinced that his chance hit at Thorn had struck true. He was tired from his long day's travel, but little inclination to sleep came to him, and stretching himself out on the lounge with his head and shoulders bolstered up with furs, he continued to smoke and think. He was surprised when the little clock tinkled the hour of eleven, he had not seen the clock before. 
Now he listened to the faint monotonous ticking it made close to his head until he felt an impelling drowsiness creeping over him, and he closed his eyes. He was almost asleep when it struck again, softly and yet with sufficient loudness to arouse him. It had struck twelve. With an effort Howland overcame his drowsiness and dragged himself to a sitting posture, knowing that he should undress and go to bed. The lamp was still burning brightly, and he arose to turn down the wick. Suddenly he stopped. To his dulled senses there came distinctly the sound of a knock at the door. For a few moments he waited, silent and motionless. It came again, louder than before, and yet in it there was something of caution. It was not the heavy tattoo of one who had come to awaken him on a matter of business. Who could be his midnight visitor? Softly, Howland went back to his heavy coat and slipped his small revolver into his hip pocket. The knock came again. Then he walked to the door, shot back the bolt, and with his right hand gripping the butt of his pistol, flung it wide open. For a moment he stood transfixed, staring speechlessly at a white, startled face lighted up by the glow of the oil lamp. Bewildered to the point of dumbness, he backed slowly, holding the door open, and there entered the one person in all the world whom he wished most to see, she who had become so strangely a part of his life since that first night at Prince Albert, and whose sweet face was holding a deeper meaning for him with every hour that he lived. He closed the door and turned, still without speaking, and impelled by a sudden spirit that sent the blood thrilling through his veins, he held out both hands to the girl for whom he now knew that he was willing to face all of the perils that might await him between civilization and the bay. End of chapter 5 Recording by Roger Moline